0: Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica and I have two podcast co-host guests as our regular crew has disbanded for a little bit because we need rest. Um, First of all, Ishmael Darrow is the digital editor at Democracy Now!, who joins us from New York and is a former BuzzFeed Canada reporter. Welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: Well, thanks for uh, answering the call, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And Barbara Zagier, who is an Ottawa-based community organizer and advocate with Empower her network, Immigrant Women Services Ottawa, and is a 2018 Young Leader for Women Deliver.
2: Yeah, thank you. Wow, what is that? Um, So, Women Deliver is the organization that. They have the biggest uh, conference focused on gender equality, and they organize it every three years. And part of their new system that they've had for the past six years is um, training young leaders who are involved in gender equity work across the world. And they give us advocacy training and uh, media training and all that fun stuff. And they take us to this big conference. And this year, it's happening in June in Vancouver. Really? Yeah, for a week. Advocacy training and activist training, like... That's yeah, amazing across the world. So there's um, I think this year there were almost 200 young leaders across the planet. So uh, whether it's in East Africa, uh, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Canada, obviously, um, and we're all trained. We do an online course and we also meet up in our regions and work on advancing the cause of women.
0: I feel like I uh, I feel like you need to give me details after this. I will actually. Um, where can you we find them?
2: Uh, so Women Deliver is on social media. They're really easy to find. Women like Women Deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be seeing a lot of them in the next couple of weeks because of the big partner for this year's conference is the Government of Canada. Really? Yeah. So the Government of Canada is funding uh, the conference. A- huge chunk of the conference and they are, it's one of their big things that they're funding this year for gender equality. Oh, that's uh, also yeah. So that's why it's happening in Vancouver this year.
0: Is that through status of women?
2: Uh, I think it's through foreign affairs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so through even Yuck. more interesting. Yeah.
0: Oh, right. Because they're an international organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Ishmael. Um, tell us about democracy now. I'm, I'm totally like, I'm, Okay, if I were to think of a dream role, like being digital editor at like a place like Democracy Now!, that would be it. <laughs>
1: um, well, that's flattering. Um, yeah, so I've only been there about three months. I'm coming up on my three-month um, you know, mark. And it's been interesting. You know, I moved to New York from Toronto about six months ago. And I was looking for work for a while. And, and this job came up. Um, I applied sort of on a whim. And it, it worked out. And so far, it's been great. So my main role is, um, you know, as somebody coming from like more of a digital background, working in a, in a broadcast place, you know, Democracy Now! is a daily TV and radio show. And my job basically is to like get them on the internet and like try to get their stuff seen as much as possible, especially by younger folks and like new audiences who maybe aren't familiar with them. And... Um, you know, I'm familiar with it because I started listening to uh, the show back in, like, university, actually during, like, the uh, Obama-Clinton primaries of, like, 2008. Um, wow. They've been
0: around that
1: long, eh? Uh, yeah, they've been around about 20, 23 years. So it's, oh, really, wow. it's really interesting coming in sort of late in the game. And, uh, you know, it's this thing that I've liked for a long time. But even my own experience with the show is relatively recent, given the history of the whole organization, and, um, yeah, it's, it's really fun working in a place that you've kind of like respected from the outside and you get to be on the inside. And, um, yeah, I sort of, my, my main job is to just try to like, uh, get them uh, out to as many people as possible who maybe just don't know that it's a good daily newscast yet.
0: I literally did not know that they were a daily newscast. I know them through Twitter.
1: Well, that's me. If, if you see any tweets, they're probably written by me. <laughs>
0: Good. Good. You're, you're good at your job. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, first of all, uh, <laughs> <Mayo-chella>. <laughs> Can we talk about Mayoella?
1: We have to. Ishmael,
0: are you aware of this whole thing?
1: I mean, I think the name kind of gives away what you guys are going to talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah. This um, is not, this is more like, Let's call this a chapeau piece. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. We have so, to. I will be honest with you guys. I did not see Homecoming.
2: Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. I didn't.
0: I haven't watched it yet.
2: Yeah. Why? Why? Um, because I was busy. Okay. okay. But have you seen the Coachella performance? I did see the Coachella okay. performance. Okay.
0: I didn't see Homecoming. No, okay. I don't know yet. I also don't have Netflix because I what? got into, okay, so I got into this argument with Netflix and then I was like, fuck you. And I was like,
2: you need to get a friend who has an extra like password I, and just get it. It's not
0: Aaron. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Aaron like, and then I'm like, oh shit, it's not you. Um. Anybody who wants to provide me a Netflix account password? Sure. I'm here for it. I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> so it out gonna there. slide in your Look, DMs I mean, and be you like, don't, "You don't. You don't get if you don't ask." Okay. True. That's put it out I'm in saying. the universe.
2: <laughs> just put it out in the universe. It'll work yeah, out. Put
0: it out in the universe. So, Mayoella. I didn't watch Taylor either
2: I, at the Billboard. Honestly, voice. I haven't watched it. I just saw the clips side by side, yeah. and it was enough of a like. What were you thinking? Like in what universe did you think there wasn't going to be a comparison? In what universe did you think that like people were not going to be, oh yeah, Taylor Swift can absolutely have a like drumline and be like this does not look like something we've been talking about for the past year, let alone the past week. <sighs> it was just oh god.
1: Taylor Swift
0: Ishmael, did you did you watch it? Did you watch anything that
1: we're talking about here? I I watched Homecoming. I thought it was amazing. <gasps>
2: okay, and,
1: and and um yeah, I mean I was blown away because I didn't watch the original uh, Coachella performance. Um, I just sort of missed out on it, and I don't think I even knew where I could have watched it. It just sort of like came and went, and I was like, well, crap! There goes like a, an important moment that I I just missed in the culture. So it was really good to actually see it on Netflix. Um, and, and just on Taylor, I'll say that my partner uh, has a theory that, that we've reached and we've surpassed peak Taylor Swift and that we're just not going to be talking about her in like another year or so, I think. And yeah,
2: I totally agree. Yeah. She's not culturally relevant in my opinion. She's Mm. not culturally relevant whatsoever because she's just, she just keeps coming up at moments and doing things past the time. Like her coming out as a Democrat, we're all like cool, but like. Okay. That's not the fight we're in right now. We're, we're right. past that fight. Yeah. You coming out as someone who thinks we should vote and young people should be involved. Like, that happened two years ago. Yeah. Welcome to the fight, I guess. Like, <laughs> you support gay rights now? Like, cool. Like, I don't, like, Taylor Swift is one of those people that I will genuinely, like, I've never really been a fan. I mm. don't understand her fandom. Mm. I'm just like, you exist and I exist in the same world, apparently, but we just, like, our paths never, well, like, understand each other. And Black Twitter is blessed for coming up with Mayo Cella.
0: <laughs> Black Twitter is a blessing, damn it. Oh, a blessing. Ode to Black Twitter. Honestly, okay? we Okay, should... because
2: Mayo Cella was
0: everything. I... I have to say, I think you're right. Um, I think your partner's right. Um, there's something just offbeat about Taylor Swift in general. Like she just seems to like miss the beat. She does. She's Always. not on beat. No, she's not. She's not <laughs> of anything. Like, like exactly what you said. It's it's kind of like she's a day late and a dollar short. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing if you come in late but Mm -hmm. you can't come in late to replicate the status quo. If you're going to come in late to the conversation, because Beyonce was late Mm -hmm. to the, to the black lives matter conversation, but what she did with it was different. Mm -hmm. And she had, um, and I think in the digital sense, this is what I think Beyonce is the greatest digital marketer of our time or one of, Mm -hmm. um, I think the way she unrolled exact form from formation to the Super Bowl event to it kept she kept adding and adding and yeah. adding and adding like once she got on something, she made it not only culturally relevant on a mass scale but actually pushed it pushed the line further mm-hmm. and that 's what Taylor has to do, and i don 't think she 's realized that she doesn't, like, even the Kardashians know that. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Even if they're ridiculous about it, they know that. They're still relevant. They're still relevant. That's the thing.
2: We can say that the Kardashians are still relevant, and we can still have a conversation about them, but Taylor Swift, I literally cannot, like, okay, cool, you have a new song, like, you think you can, like, there's nothing there. There's no substance. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, also, like, why did you think, bring, like, a drumline in pink, like literally, it's there's like no comparison. like it's 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 so absurd. Even if they found out like they had been training and like been preparing for months, and then all of a sudden they see homecoming, they should have changed the performance. They should have been like, listen, there's a problem here. This is not gonna go down well. Modify it in some way. But the Coachella performance was already out there. I know, but I don't think they realized homecoming was coming uh, at the time that it was coming oh, and that it was gonna be the conversation that it was.
0: Exactly. So we'll move on from this because <laughs> I'm getting that signal. Cause I, I could talk about this shit forever. It's worth
2: going, just scrolling on black shoulder. I feel like you like just sidelined Ishmael. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's seen Homecoming. He, he... <laughs> Yeah. He's doing better
1: than me. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to note that I think it's funny that you said you had a fight with Netflix. Like, is there a Mr. Netflix that you're feuding with? Like, <laughs> what does it mean to be fighting with Netflix?
0: I don't know. I just, I just didn't like, <laughs> I didn't like their customer service, let's say. Okay. So, more like I'm fighting with their customer
1: service. Okay. Which, that makes you know,
0: sense. I'm just saying that, you know, if you're going to say that there isn't a free trial, then say so. That's all I ask. Honestly. I'm with you. Yeah, but there's no free trial anymore, and they didn't say that. Really? Yeah. So, what the fuck? I did I not don't know get that. about this Because <laughs> okay. I'm already taking off my glasses, okay? <laughs> All right. So, let's get into it. That's not actually the show, which I find that funny. Um, anyway, so this week in feminism, Florida lost its mind <laughs>
2: again. <laughs> Because when Florida. can Florida ever act right? It's Florida. What can I say? Yeah, what can
0: like Florida and Texas, they fight for this position. And then Alabama comes in and just
2: No, but turks tex- them all. Texas uh, is consistently wilding and then Florida just like comes out like, oh, no, it's out true. of nowhere. It's Sometimes true. you're just like, Oh, Florida's been quiet for a week yeah. and then it just like Or Florida comes did in. something
0: good and then but no, 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 there's always a catch. Anyway. Yeah. In the 2018 midterms, Floridians voted to overturn a law that banned people with past felony convictions from voting unless their rights were restored by the governor, with 64% of the vote. In doing so, roughly 1.4 million residents were reenfranchised, making it the largest expansion of voting rights in the state since 1965. Now, as an aside, I knew this is—I knew when I heard this that Gillum wouldn't win. Yeah. Because Florida can't do two things <laughs> in a row. <laughs> no,
2: that'd be too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> However, the Republican-controlled state legislature just passed a bill that would disenfranchise about half a million Floridians. The measure would require people with felony convictions to pay all restitution, fines, and fees resulting from their sentences become- before becoming eligible, eligible to vote. The legislation is headed to the governor DeSantis' desk, a Republican, for signature. Can you imagine if that was Gillum?
2: Yeah, no, it wouldn't be a uh-huh. thing.
0: So even if someone with a felony conviction has served their sentence, completed probation and parole because they have outstanding financial obligations, they won't be able to exercise a right that people of Florida voted to give them back. In some instances, The amount owed by some people can reach tens of millions of dollars. So from 2014 to 2018, Florida courts had minimal collections expectations for more than 80 percent of those who owed money because people were often too poor to pay any outstanding fines Mm -hmm. like this. This is why it's considered a poll tax. Yeah um effectively a poll tax. so ishma, since you've been like the quietest one here <laughs> and I feel waiting patiently, what the hell is my question um obviously I would I would start this out by saying obviously the Republicans have been restricting um have been engaged in voter suppression since well, Obama in 2008. So um, should this really be a
1: surprise? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a surprise only in how brazen it is. You know, here was this historic um, vote, this referendum, where Flor- Floridians themselves were like, you know what? It is kind of wild that if you serve your sentence, you quote unquote, you know, repay your debt to society, you should get your voting rights back. First of all, it's pretty wild that uh, the U.S., you know, across the board has all these rules against, people with felony convictions voting. I mean, in Canada, I think uh, prisoners got voting rights in 2002 because of a Supreme Court case. So I think for most of our lifetimes, it's not re- even been an issue. Like the idea of you losing your right to vote, even behind bars, doesn't really you know enter your mind as a Canadian. But it's so rampant in the U.S. and it's so widespread. So for this to happen was so encouraging uh, during the midterms. And then, of course, the legislature immediately tries to find a way to claw back that progress. And it's so disheartening to see. And it just shows what a two steps forward, one step back fight it is on, on all these criminal justice issues and how, you know, even, even really encouraging news can quickly be, you know, um, peeled back by, by these reactionary sort of forces.
0: And it's, you know, what's really interesting to me is that, We're surprised still at their brazenness. Like, don't you find that interesting that there are a lot of people who, like, I personally was not surprised. I was like, Florida's gonna find a way to fuck this up. And, ta da! You know, (laughs) like, like, this is so in the pattern of Florida. This is so in the pattern of especially states and a party that has been working on chipping away at voter, you know, at voter rights.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. My I, I feel question. Like yeah. Sorry. I just feel like Florida is allergic to good press. Like when they passed. This,
2: <laughs> That's true.
1: When they passed this resolution um, in the midterms, everyone was like, oh, my God, Florida, good for you. And after a couple of months, they were like, this is too much. We can't.
2: It was honestly seen as like the biggest, vic- one of the biggest victories of like the midterms. Yeah. This was huge. And if you follow any like person who works in like this field and a lot of the activists and advocates for um, re enfranchisement of um, former felons, like this was a huge deal. This was some people's life work. Um, and to see. <laughs> Florida, just be like, "Mm, no, la gay. That was that was cute. We're not going to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when you vote in Republicans, that's what you get. Why are we? You know, here's here's my thing. I feel as though the Republicans are playing chess, consistently Mm -hmm. playing chess, and everybody else is playing checkers. Yeah. So you know, we think and progressives, the left, etc think that the battle is with the next election. No, They think that there's only one battle Mm -hmm. that whereas, and this is how I know that they haven't really reached into the activist grassroots community is because a, these things don't happen without activism. Mm -hmm. And like you said, people's life work. Mm -hmm. And also um, I, I, I'm not sure if you're a Democrat, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the, the, the plan forward is. I, I and I, I, let me, let me give you a little context. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about this in terms of remaking the entire society for generations to come. hmm and that's the chess game. That's the long game. Yeah, They've realized that they don't have to go to, th- to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. to rob people, especially black and brown and poor people, of their rights. Yeah. They don't have to do that. No. Um, they've figured out that they can chip away at it over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again, and eventually they'll strike gold, which is why they have so many Obama obamacare repeals
2: yeah well the republicans have also been very strategic in their organizing and that's something we don't talk enough about is Mm -hmm. since obama's win in 2008 republicans had they took a step back looked at their party and were like okay why did we lose they Mm -hmm. actually had a full year of like examining their party their policies like they what did they it was a post mortem. The post mortem. Yes. They had a really, really like post mortem. Exactly. Yeah. And they were strategic about it. They invested in their in their strategy and building a strategy. What's that? They invested in strategy and
0: communications and what? Mm-hmm. What? And in digital. hmm
2: yeah. They they found a they found a formula that worked for them and they realized through that postmortem that the biggest battle was not winning the presidency. It was local working locally redistricting which we don't talk enough about yep. um stuff like this where they're taking away rights that have just been given to re-enfranchised former felons and that's how they've been building up the whole like we we focus a lot on the supreme court and what's his name the guy that we all hate Kavanaugh Kavanaugh, but Kavanaugh is not a product of like, he's a product of a machine that put him there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And that's, that's a larger conversation we need to be having in progressive spaces and on the left specifically. And I, I assume
0: that democracy now Ishmael is trying to kind of um, get into that longer term game or is there. And I just didn't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think these are issues that that, uh, we cover a lot, and another example that comes to mind is abortion rights in the U.S. You know, Roe v. Wade is being chipped away at in a million different ways. Um, to your point, uh, Barbara, like you know, it's 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 a machine. You know, it's happening at the local level, at the state level, at the uh, you know Supreme Court level. They know that they just have to get it right once. They just have to find a case once that Mm -hmm. that goes all the way that strikes this down. And there's even, you know, so-called trigger laws that they've put in place that are like, you know, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, like literally the second it does, our state is going to ban abortion. You know, these are these are really, really sophisticated and horrific campaigns on that issue alone. And the Mm -hmm. same thing goes on voting rights. The same thing goes on all sorts of issues. And uh, and you're right that you know they they focus very much so on the local level in a way that makes sense because it's it's sort of like a pyramid structure. <laughs> and yeah. I think on the other side here in the. US, uh, when you look at the Democratic Party, there's such a focus on the presidency. I mean half the country is running for president right now
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, know. yeah
1: but I think on that local level, at least for a long time there just really wasn't that focus. So under Obama, you know they lost something like a thousand state-level um, governorships and senators and, and uh, representatives, you know, that those local laws can do a lot of damage to your overall project uh, if all you're focusing on is the four-year cycle.
0: Do you think that that's the same in Canada with, let's say, the progressive? So let's say the NDP, for example.
1: I mean, the, I feel like in Canada it, it's interesting because – sort of having a foot in both countries now in a way, obviously like the two party structure really sucks for a million reasons, but there's also a real chance to, uh, take these big parties and try to push them toward, you know, closer to your goals. Whereas I sometimes wonder like if the NDP in Canada doesn't siphon a lot of energy away, um, And and then, you know, during elections, the the liberals try to siphon that energy back toward them, you know. But when you look at long term uh, projects, you know, like I I have a hard time thinking of like major sort of social and and political and economic gains that the left has made in Canada, you know, in my lifetime on things like climate change, on things like, uh, you know, economic injustice and, and I, I I worry that it is also coming back down to an electoral strategy instead of a grassroots strategy for um, the NDP in particular. But, you know, the liberals every four years when they pretend to be a progressive party as well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I think that um, they, I, the progressive left needs to build a grassroots movement. And I think too many of the actors and the decision makers are too bureaucratic and come from a space that isn't of loss. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you come from a space where you don't know what loss is, then you are almost, um, you fall back to a bureaucracy of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's kind of what, um, kind of separates the wheat from the chaff so, so much. Anyway, um, I am going to, so now for those who don't know, uh, what a poll tax is, um, it's basically a way to create a fixed fee charged to each, uh, to a specific person, um, in order for them To vote, and the U.S. has used the poll tax throughout Jim Crow to disenfranchise, especially Black voters. Um, So when that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about a poll tax. But the other uh, fallout from this is that this is creating a two-tiered system that says the amount of money you have determines whether or not you can vote. And, of course, this issue is particularly concerning if you have black or brown skin. Mm-hmm. Um, poor people especially suffer. And the Republicans have done a really good job in creating um, a messaging machine that tells people if you're poor, it's your fault. Yeah. And that's rhetoric that we have. Adopted in Canada,
2: we've internalized it too. Like it's not just adopted; we've internalized it. Yeah, truly believe it. Yeah. Um, another big thing, just re- talk, coming back to the to the poll tax. Um, one of the big things about this decision is legislators have like made this decision and are committing to this, but they actually haven't created a structure for this to happen. Mm-hmm. So they're actually putting the onus on um, each district to figure this out.
0: Mm-hmm
2: which is insane Mm -hmm. so they're actually creating chaos which makes it easier for people not to really follow up not to understand what's going on and makes it even more confusing so like their objective is chaos and they've achieved it in this sense because
0: chaos is a ladder it it is I'd like to quote the great (laughs) season (laughs) 7 fallen (laughs) villain (laughs) Peter Baelish (laughs)
2: You slid one bot I, reference in there. I
0: did. You got it. You know I'll be live tweeting tonight. Everybody. I know. I know.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: All right, Ishmael. Anything? Anything else?
1: Uh, so one of the things that I have not been able to figure out from some of the coverage of this Florida um, change is—is is this this uh, this phrasing about like you know you, you can only vote once you've paid up all your all your fines and fees um, related to your sentence. And, you know, I don't have experience with the criminal justice system in that way. But it's like, if you get out of jail, I don't understand who you still owe money to. Wasn't that the debt you were repaying? Like, I guess I'm, I'm even confused about like the actual like monetary side of this. Like, why, why on earth are you still owing people money?
2: So the States is very pervasive. And the only reason I know this is because I've been following someone, uh, Clint Smith the third. He's a really, really uh, interesting activist from the US and he's been doing his PhD on this topic specifically. And um, he, so the the way it works in the US is you will get small fees added to whatever, if you're, if you need a public defendant, yes. Um, if you need a public defendant, you'll get like a tiny fee, but that fee grows every time you see your public defendant, even though your public defendant is supposed to be free in theory. The reality of it is in the States, it's not free. At every point in turn, you're going to have a small fee, whether it's like a um, an administrative fee that's added. And then that fee grows and grows and grows. And even if you're incarcerated, that, fee's, that fee continues to grow, uh, whether it's f- for small things. And then at the end of it, you actually receive a bill
1: oh, from wow. the state. That is shocking. I mean, I figured it was going to be some racist bullshit, but that is less. I mean, it's it's just every level of the system seems designed to punish uh, poor people and people of color. And it's just shocking.
2: Yeah, completely. And it's something that's so pervasive in the States because it's so bold. And like you said, like it's, it's surprising that we still find it bold and like shocking, but it is because it's so brazen. Um, But yeah, that's how, that's how it operates in the States. I, wow. It's, it's, the more you read about it, the more you get angry and you're just like, fuck it. <laughs> like-
0: <laughs> you know what? And Canada takes every bad decision from the states and then pretends that it's a good one. Yeah. Even when even when pe- even when people in America know better.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway. So next, uh, Ishmael, did you watch Knockdown the House?
1: I did. I just watched it a couple nights ago. I thought it was just really, really cool.
0: Yeah, I'm really fucking inspired right now. It... I really am. I I'm going to so um, an acquaintance of mine, Julie. I'm not going to say her full name, <laughs> but she knows who she is. Thank you, girl. So she um, she had a screening of it mm. this week at her um, at Beyond the Pale, which mm-hmm. is. Down yes. um, the brewery, and I was just like, Oh my god, I almost cried, like it was just so inspiring and touching and moving. I cried, and it reminds me of what the free people get into politics for yeah. or should get into politics.
2: For. The reasons why I okay, so I watched it by myself <laughs> last night, uh, but I, immediately after watching it, I called my best friend and like was crying on the phone with her yeah. because I was like, Listen. I don't know how, I don't know where, but we need to do something like this because... Didn't it make you
0: want to do something yeah. here?
2: And the thing is, it's it's hilarious because, like, the past week I've talked to, like, I've everyone I've talked to about, like, the state of politics and, like, the upcoming election and, like, everything that's going on, everyone's just so blase
0: because... I, th- I think they don't know what to do.
2: Well, I don't either, right? Yeah. We're all very blase because our options suck. (laughs) (laughs) Word. Like, word. Truly, like, our options, there's no one that's, like, firing up. Like, there's no one who we feel like, I don't know, I still haven't, like, really met a candidate that I'm just like, yeah, like, I'll follow you. Like, word. Let me, let me know when and where I'll be there. Like, no. And this was the, total opposite. Do we want to give context for those who haven't
0: watched it? Yes, I will give context. So last week, Netflix released their new documentary, Knock Down the House, which chronicles four female Democratic candidates who challenge incumbents in the 2018 midterm election. The film earned the top audience prize at the Sundance Film Festival this year. I will say that the first, I looked at the closing, um, what do they call them? Credits, thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, and I saw, like, director was a woman, producer was a woman, just women, 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 and they had some guy down there for like
2: <laughs> lighting or something. Yeah,
0: <laughs> for diversity,
2: uh, they had to have a diversity hire. I, Otherwise, it's not I fair. Know,
0: and then yeah, but like it was just okay. So it was inspiring. The candidates include Alexandria Orcasio Cortez in New York. Corey Bush in St. Louis, Amy Villela in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Sorry. You see, I, I, I got through the name and then screwed up the city. It's <laughs> fine. It's
2: close enough. Vegas. Damn it. Nevada. Yeah.
0: And Paula Jean. Oh Jesus. Swearing gin. Yeah. In West Virginia. The director. Rachel Lears was seeking to tell the story of how to change political power. To achieve this, she worked with two progressive organizations, Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats, who had been working to recruit novice candidates. Lears ultimately selected the four candidates because she felt that win or lose, they would be compelling to watch due to their different reasons for throwing their hats in the ring. She did a good job in the choices.
2: She also chose them just for like the little story because I went down a rabbit hole after Mm -hmm. watching this. Mm -hmm. Um, She also chose these four candidates because their primaries were at different dates. And that was one of the big, big reasons is she wanted to be able to be there, like to have a crew and to be able to follow them right throughout their whole campaign. And that's awesome. And that was like a huge strategic reason because, like, my big question was like, why didn't she follow Rashida Tlaib? Like, I really wanted to hear that story. Yeah, like, Ilhan yeah. Omar, or yeah, yeah. Ayanna Pri- Presley. Right. Um, but um, one of the big, them. big, big, yes. big, big, big reasons was because she needed four, like, she wanted four diverse women, very different stories, very different parts of the country, different dynamics, and all of that. Um, but it was also different primary dates. I see.
0: Okay, so the film is ultimately a series of moving and compelling portraits about the emotional and personal impetus behind each woman's entry into politics, several of whom who are, are mothers and who all come from diverse and atypical backgrounds. I have to say the West Virginia story and the Vegas story. So um, I'm going to go up. So, Paula Jean Swearingen mm-hmm. and Amy Valela mm-hmm. uh, were the two who really, really moved me. Yeah. Because Amy lost her daughter
2: mm-hmm.
0: during that time due to her not having insurance. Yeah. And Paula Jean, or, you know, you could see that she just wanted to heal her county. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that that was really interesting to see the reasons why these women Mm -hmm. entered politics, especially behind a background where we're always telling women how to run Mm -hmm. or that they should run. And I just found that interesting. What say you, Ishmael?
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought all their stories were really, really moving. In a way, way. you... While you're watching it, you're like, wow, you you had incredibly good sense to pick AOC because obviously we know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her her primary and then later the uh, midterm election, too. I I think it helped leaven some of the the sadness, really, because even, you know, spoiler alert, you know, the other three candidates don't make it. Um, But as you follow all of their journeys, you know, I think it's really good to have the one uh, candidate who does make it because it shows you that it wasn't all futile and Mm -hmm. you really get a sense of just how grueling this stuff is. I mean, obviously I don't think anybody's under the illusion that running for office is easy, but you know, compared to uh, some of the people they're running against who are literally phoning it in or not even showing up to debates and sending surrogates. And you have these, these young women just like busting their asses, like knocking on doors, like 12 hours a day while working side gigs it's, it's really, I think, yeah, as you said, Erica, like it's, it's very inspirational and um, it also kind of points a way forward. You know, it, it, it's like the, the way to like defeat or to change politics um, of, of the status quo is like, it's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work, but like there's more grassroots than there are people at the top. And ultimately that really hopeful message Um, you know, sort of bittersweet message that it ends on, I think, is the thing I took away from the movie.
2: Yeah, for sure. I just to add on onto that, like, for me, the one of the big things that I took away from it, and like, made me like, kind of want to learn a little bit more was the two organizations that actually recruited candidates. Yeah. So the two of them, spoiler alert, like, you're gonna learn this, but uh, brand new Congress and justice for Democrats. So um, brand new Congress actually crowdsourced candidates for from the community. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, AOC was nominated by her brother. That's that's mentioned in the documentary. Right. Yeah. So, they actually crowdsourced candidates from the community, vetted them, prepped them, trained them, and created a vehicle for accountability. So, these candidates were accountable to, you know, brand new Congress and Justice for Democrats. And um, what was even neater is they had 12 Thousand applications, um, and of those twelve thousand applications, twelve turned into candidates. So they had twelve candidates, but only AOC actually won. Yeah, of the of that first batch from Brandon, Brandon Congress.
0: But she did say in the film, you know, it takes ten of us to run for one of us to win.
2: And she also... And I think people have to be real Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, the reality of it. The
0: reality of it is that it takes 12,000 candidates to get 12 of one, Mm -hmm. okay? So, and that's just the structure. I don't even know what it would be in Canada because then you have to go through the riding association, Exactly, right? So I'm not even sure if that um, stat would hold, it would probably take 12,000 to get i don't know maybe 3
2: you know what like canada would have to it would have to be a different strategy it cannot be yeah, the same strategy not as the, the us same strategy, but because of our structure yeah but even then we have to have a strategy about how to get into political parties so right Brand new Congress actually recruited both Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. So they went after both parties and they were like, we're not going to, they wanted to recruit outsiders, Mm -hmm. political outsiders. They specifically did not want people who had experience in politics and they wanted to push that conversation and challenge incumbents specifically like Joe Crowley, who. Oh
0: my gosh. Talking about (laughs) Israel, when you said folding it in, (laughs) I immediately thought of Crowley
1: I mean it is just wild, like even when the race was happening, you know I was watching it pretty closely because there was quite a bit of buzz about AOC and this insurgent campaign she was running and and this comes up in the film too, where at a certain point um, you know she's like basically running against an absentee congressman he lives in Virginia even though he's riding sorry his district <laughs> is um in New York he's like a top Democrat in Congress, but is like basically only seen at, like, major events, like, you know, like, festivals and stuff. And Pride. AOC at some point says, you know, when they finally get a face-to-face debate, she's like, I don't know if, if they're being really stupid or if I'm about to walk into a trap. And yeah. I remember when the, the primaries were even happening at the time, there was, like, a sense of, like, what is happening? This, like, young woman is doing really well, but is she... Up against a really bad candidate, or against the candidate who is so unbeatable that he doesn't even have to try. And of course, right. history shows that he actually was just a very bad, uh, complacent candidate. And I think again, it points to the the fundamental weakness of a lot of these party structures. Uh, that it, with with enough pressure and and a really fantastic candidate, obviously, I don't think anybody would deny that that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is like a really talented uh politician um you know given the given those uh factors she took down the number four democrat in congress and it's it's kind of yeah it's it's a huge achievement it's a big deal
0: it's a big fucking deal um i think so this is okay i um Learned about Alexandria casio Cortez because I was looking at. I'd become aware of the campaign of M.J. Hager mm-hmm. in Texas. So Marie Jennings Hager, the American Air Force veteran, businesswoman, teacher, who um, who sued. Um, I think it was the Air Force to remove the combat combat exclusion policy. Mm-hmm. where women couldn't be uh weren't allowed into combat and basically challenged that law
2: mm-hmm.
0: and won. So she decided to run. Her her um like uh candidacy not candidacy, but her campaign video
2: mm-hmm.
0: was <clears throat> just something completely different from anything anybody has and I remember watching this because I subscribed to like Adage and Ad Week and, mm-hmm. you know, digital stuff, right? And I remember they were talking, they had a whole expo. This is beca- before Alexandria Cor- Ocasio-Cortez became a thing. Mm-hmm. And they had mentioned, they were talking about the different ways in which um, politics is being done, the different ways in which campaigning is being done. Especially from you know outsider candidates, mm-hmm. and I saw MJ Hager's video. Her campaign video was, which is about doors, which is absolute. Like Google it. Okay, um, it is absolutely phenomenal. And then I saw AOC's because they reference AOC's because I think the mm-hmm. same company did both. Yeah, and I watched hers, and I was like, I was like, oh my god, like I- honestly. Oh my God. I was like, this is, first of all, it was inspiring. Second of all, it was real. It didn't show her in a light of consistent and complete power and positivity. Mm-hmm. It was very real. It showed her own struggle in terms of um, not only how she got there, but what she does day to day, which is what this movie kind of exemplified. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, because I'm interested naturally in the digital exploration of stuff. Yeah. It was just something completely different. It was, um, it was something relatable. Mm -hmm. And I find that, uh, with these days, there are still people who are still doing politics in this very canned response type of way. And, what I'm trying to get to in this very long way um, is to say, I wonder how much the country has changed. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the Democrat, the democratic establishment has realized that because their interpretation of Trump, of insurgents who elected Trump or whomever
2: um,
0: is that, well, we need a, we need a white male centrist (laughs) to battle Trump, which I think is a gross miscalculation. Yeah. When I meet other progressives, they say, well, the problem with progressives is that they want their, their, um, their candidates to be perfect. No. Um, Which is such a bad fucking Bill Maher take I'm just like, I know you listen to Bill Maher and I'm already discrediting you. Okay, first of all. And, and then like, I think the problem is that they keep trotting out the establishment when we're in sort of a space where the establishment has not delivered.
2: Yeah. Well, the perfect example in the movie, um, in the documentary is when they're talking about the pamphlets. Uh, they're talking about the pamphlets. So AOC is comparing her uh, pamphlet to Joe Crowley's. It's two different worlds. Yeah, it is. It's completely. I saw that. Yeah. They're running two different campaigns. Yeah. They exist in two different universes. Yes. And it's surprising that, like, it's so simple. Their strategy is simple and it makes sense. But Joe Crowley is. And the Democratic establishment as an extension of Joe Crowley is coming from a strategist perspective, whereas Alexandria is coming from a community organizer perspective.
0: But if this is my thing. How can you be a good strategist without knowing that community organizing roots in this day and age? But that's... Or doing advocacy work. How
2: can you be a good strategist without that? But that's the illusion that the establishment needs to stay as is. That's the thing. Is like yeah. The people who are in those positions have been in those positions for 30 years. 30 years yeah. they they still think like it was 30 years ago yeah the world has completely changed yeah their voter base has completely changed mm-hmm. democrats don't understand who their voter base is that's why they won't there. have Stacey abrams as a candidate but they'll look at joe biden and be like yes this makes sense <laughs> israel
1: yeah i mean i uh, one of the things that i wanted to talk about this week which maybe we can get into later or we can do now is just like this whole let's
0: do it now let's
1: do it so you know there's been this like bizarre turn in this election to talk about quote-unquote electability and of course electability is usually you know you talk about like oh progressives always want purity they want a pure candidate who's perfect well purity politics goes both ways because you know uh often the sort of establishment uh wing of a political party also wants purity But the thing they're looking for is, you know, in in the U.S. case, uh, being friendly to big business, being okay with a little bit of racism (laughs) because they seem to think that that's how you win over white working class people instead of trying to appeal to them on uh, other grounds. And so there's all sorts of um, stuff about how Joe Biden is the, quote unquote, most electable of the bunch. And this is just such a scam because. Basically, the Democratic Party has convinced its own voters over the last 30 years that they can't have what they want. They can't vote for the candidates who actually have the most exciting policies or who speak to their values. They have to all be political strategists and all think three steps ahead of like, well, I don't like him, but I assume my racist neighbor must like him. So let's nominate the sort of racist guy to appeal to the full racist. And it's a bizarre way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, it's- seriously like honestly it's no
0: I'm laughing because it's so true carry on
1: <laughs> it, it's just it, it's this weird insistence on on making voters all become political um, strategists which is silly because voters should first and foremost be voting right they should be voting for whoever is promising to make their lives better but you know I, I think this is just a problem on the broad left more than it is on the right because When you look at the Republican Party, you know, primary voters just want, you know, the guy who promises them uh, fewer taxes and more guns, you know, to to put it bluntly. They are not as willing to water down their expectations, or at least not until very late in the game, like, you know, when it comes down to, like, late in the primaries or something. It's like, ah, yeah, I guess we still want that Supreme Court seat, so maybe. But, you know, you didn't see that in 2016. You didn't see it in 2000. You just... And you know what, they have not suffered a penalty for it, because at least people know where these candidates stand, they know what the party stands for. Whereas on the, you know, broad liberal left side, it's this constant sort of triangulating that ultimately means that your own base isn't excited, and the people you're trying to convince don't know what you stand for. And it's just, of course, you know, the current conversation about electability benefits the guy who is the most out of touch with the changing country, as as was discussed earlier, and who also has unique weaknesses. Like, how is he going to go up against Trump, the guy who has admitted to sexually, you know, uh, assaulting women? When he has this creepy touching problem, at the very least, yeah. You know, it may be worse. Uh, who knows what else we'll find out about him. Um, But certainly like you can't have the creepy uncle going up against the uh, admitted sexual assaulter because it's it's just it doesn't scan, you know, and you can't have him going after Trump as like a rotten part of like the establishment because Joe Biden literally is the establishment. His promise is to bring back normalcy and to work with Republicans and and go back to the Kumbaya bipartisan centrist era that is just long gone and he doesn't re- realize it and the people who suffer from this electability focus is not just people on the left like elizabeth warren and bernie sanders who are who are legitimately challenging the system but you're also seeing it bite people like kamala harris and cory booker who you know if you look at their political careers are you know fairly moderate like sort of played it by the book like paid their dues got to a level They, you know, in some ways they've played it as safe as you can as a politician. And yet, because they're not white men, they are still paying the tax of electability. It's just a rigged game. And I just don't think anybody needs to be taking it seriously at this point.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. All those points. (laughs) I think that was a mic drop. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, it's an extremely frustrating thing to watch play out because... In a lot of ways, Joe Biden is the worst choice you could have made, yeah. but he feels this entitlement to running for president and getting elected eventually if they choose him. Um, but like, he's still saying things like Dick Cheney is a great dude. And like, like what the ever
0: living fuck like he has- like shut up, Joe is like, I'm like, I, I this is my thing my thing is the 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 coddling of the white vote mm-hmm. this is my problem so kind of picking up from what you said Ishmael is that is that there's like this this coddling of the oh my god the white vote we're losing it the amount of think pieces that have been um, attributed to this vote that, they've lost and they're trying to figure out how to recoup is, 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 amazing to me. Obama was more like, yeah, we'll get some white people. Sure. Okay, fine. But we'll get some other people. We'll form this coalition, a coalition that Hillary dropped. Yeah. She dropped the ball. Don't at me. She dropped the ball on that one. And, um, because I do believe there is this white arrogance where they're like, well, you can't go anywhere else. You're stuck with us. So, you know, we don't need to worry about, about you. When it has been shown time and time again, the black women especially are the ones that save their asses. When consistently, when they are, you know, on the ropes. Alabama, for one. How many black women turned out for Hillary Clinton? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I and and yet that vote is consistently being disrespected.
2: Well, they, they they take it for granted.
0: They do, but guess what? Black women can stay home too. And this just goes to show that staying home. I used to think that staying home was bullshit.
2: Now I think it's a strategy. I actually. I'm different. I think you go, you vote, but you vote uh, Blanc, so you, you don't put in a name. Oh. Because that's a protest vote because it's registered and you see that you came in. And this is something that's used a lot more in Europe. So in France, um, yeah. a lot of people will protest their vote by going in and voting. voting. It's a null vote. And those mm-hmm. votes are counted and actually um like written down and like they're not a spoiled ballot they're actually a ballot that's counted and it's part of the statistics that are shared at the end of each voting cycle interesting so i think that's a strategy we should be using more oh, as we work around like civic education and voter like civic education letting pe- voters know what their rights are and what mm-hmm. what we care about mm-hmm. i think that should be a strategy more than staying home cuz staying home like it can be interpreted as apathy and but because you care mm-hmm. go vote but show that none of the candidates actually... Represent your vote. Reflect what yeah. you're looking for. That's yeah. more of a protest vote for me than just not going. Fair. Fair. Continue. Sorry, i Yeah, no. Um, but, like, I...
0: Like, <laughs> that Anita Hill thing still stings. Uh, mass incarceration is a thing. So good luck with that Black vote is my point. And, Guess what? And he still has it. I saw that. I saw that. But then so did Hillary at this time. Yeah. Well, for me. <laughs> when I I think until about- Black Lives Matter cornered her and was like, oh, yeah, what about this super predator bullshit? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: It's for me, the whole thing with Bernie what? well, Joe Biden, but also like Joe Biden is so out of touch. It, it hurts. Mm. Like, literally, he has he still doesn't take full responsibility for his actions with Anita Hill. Mm-hmm. And at this point, like, it's like talking to a wall. Like, he just will not listen. He does not feel like he's done anything wrong. He's joking about the creepy touching. Yeah, he, like...
0: Yeah, I saw like, that. He's like, what do you mean I'm creepy? I'm just a friendly guy.
2: No, Ooh. it was even worse. He was on stage with a kid and he's like, yeah, this kid gave me permission to touch him. How- <gasps> oh, yeah. are you serious? legitimately this guy I
0: mean, I guess, is why did you why didn't you say that to
2: me, <laughs> <laughs> he is completely out of touch and completely like does not understand he he keeps saying stuff about millennials being like millennials are entitled blah, 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 blah. like dude like what are you trying to do are you trying to get elected or are you just gonna be the old uncle just going up there and saying like whatever you want and then just like ride the I, coattails i
0: see obama gave him a lot of cover
2: well, actually, he was like Obama. I asked Obama not to endorse me. Didn't you? See? Yeah, he said exactly. Like he, uh, he was. He, everyone was like, okay, so like Obama is going to have to endorse someone, and he's like, actually, I asked Obama not to endorse me because I don't want him to sway the votes within the Democratic Party. I want him to support whoever becomes the final candidate. But he still dropped Obama's name five times.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, t- being like. So- Sorry, you guys have an issue?
0: No, no, no. no, go, no, no go ahead. Oh, sorry. No. My, my
1: bad. I, I thought I heard, hold on. Um, I'll start over. Yeah, the whole thing about, like, I asked Obama not to endorse me is the funniest lie I think I've ever heard, which is like... <laughs> <laughs> I Folks, I asked the most popular Democrat in the country and the last successful Democratic president not to help me win. <laughs> it's just the kind of guy I am. You know, I don't know who he thinks he's fooling with that, but... <laughs> It's, it's so, it's so ridiculous. But um, the thing that I, I think I found even more upsetting than Joe Biden, if I can just change subjects a little bit, yeah, is Pete Buttigieg, also also know. <laughs> known as Mayor Pete, because his last name is impossible to remember. But Mayor Pete is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a, a city that has, I don't know what the population is, it's like 30, 40,000, even if it's, you know, 50, 100,000. The idea, you know, he has just rocketed to the front of media coverage and he's gotten like four or five glowing profiles in like time and all these, you know, mainstream outlets. And he's seen as the smart guy, the intellectual guy, because he can speak broken Norwegian for two sentences. (laughs) And again, like even though Mayor Pete is openly gay, uh, you know, which is not insignificant. I don't want to diminish that. But he's still a guy who who benefits from being a white guy. And he's seen as like, literally when was the last time a mayor uh, rocketed to um, the presidency? I don't think it's ever happened. And it certainly w- won't happen with the South Bend, Indiana mayor. <laughs> like, let's be real. But, but you know, he's Not suddenly real. seen as like everybody's safe choice. It's like, well, if Joe Biden like fucks up, then at least we have Mayor Pete as like the safe, like secondary centrist whatever choice. And it's like, okay, but like, there was just a piece in the New York times that uh, came out Sunday and it was looking at this question of electability and who's viable and the both mayor Pete and, but also like Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, really all the guys have lost elections and the women Mm. running by and large have never lost an election, including Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar and, um, or I'm forgetting the last one, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, they have a 100 um, percent you know success rate, and yet they have to face these questions about like, oh, but can you win? It's like that's literally all they've done in their careers, <laughs> and you know, but sure, everybody go pay attention to the mayor.
0: Well, that was my whole thing with Better O'Rourke, right? Was that, I'm like, how did, how do you, what are we French now? How do we elevate a loser to like statues and shit? (laughs) Like, like that's what the French do with Napoleon. I'm like, he lost. Like, what the fuck? Like, you know what I mean? Like, have your Napoleon statue in the Louvre, okay? As as like a historical figure, but not everywhere because the motherfucker lost. And Like,
2: I don't understand. What's even more frustrating about Beto and Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, like, these guys just aren't bringing anything to the table. They are not, they don't have policies. Every time they're asked a question, they're like, one, like, debacle after another.
0: You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jerry fucking Butts in the Justice Committee being like, Hi there, Lisa. Remember me? <laughs> oh, 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 like, fuck off. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, It's like, you got, you got nothing.
2: This whole conversation around electability, for me, oh. honestly, the peak of it were, was when people were talking about Stacey Abrams.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So Stacey Abrams, especially when they were talking about Biden, him running, and the possibility of him having a running mate as a black woman. Stacey Abrams was like front of mind and it was extremely frustrating to talk to progressive men around that time mm-hmm. because a lot of them were like "Stacey abrams is not electable she's not a viable candidate and when you would ask them why they could not tell you why but they would say tim Kaine is like the perfect guy to go against trump Who? i know tim oh, exactly Kaine. uh-huh and they would say like, yeah, she's like not exciting. She's all these things, and you're like, have you read anything about Stacey Abrams? Have you listened to her? Have you read her policies or anything? Let
0: me tell you something yeah. about how out of touch fucking Pete I know. I need to bring this back to the damn movie, <laughs> but let let me just say this. I saw on like late last week he was having lunch with like <laughs> <Ooh>. Al Sharpton. <laughs> oh, really? And I'm sorry. Is Al Sharpton a spokesman for black people? This is how I know Pete knows no black people. Yeah. Okay, because he would have been. I would have been like, you didn't call D. Ray McKesson. Like, you haven't been on Pod Save the People yet. But you
2: know what? Like, Ira, um... Madison, the Madison Mark? is a huge Pete Buttigieg fan. Really? Mm-hmm. I was super surprised by it too. And I think the angle he's going at it from is like, it's a first serious gay man who's running for president and he feels that he should be given a level playing field which again not to minimize it the fact that he's a gay man openly gay man married running for office like that is a huge deal but that still does not mean he deserves to be on that playing field like you know what i mean like there's there's an expectation of a candidacy for presence or at least like we think there is because at this point the rules don't make any sense to anyone and everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. But like there is a huge baseline support on that. Mm. But the fact that we haven't broken the glass ceiling, the highest of glass ceilings as Hillary Clinton would say for women, that's no longer part of the conversation that's been lost. Mm. And I don't know how we bring it back and how people make that the topic of conversation kind of centred around this electability question. Well,
0: I think what the, you know, Knock Down the House movie, really, and you can actually, Ishval, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, which is the idea of electability and how you make someone electable. People are acting like electability just falls from the sky or is inherent in people. And there's a machine Mm -hmm. that makes you electable. Mm -hmm. So Ishval, can you... Mainly, like, can
1: you speak on that in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, electability is, you know, it's such an ineffable quality. But you, you, somebody who was not electable supposedly was Donald Trump. You know, he was this game show host running a, an explicitly, you know, racist, white nationalist campaign. His whole party repudiated him at one point, and yet he won because, you know, that's. It was, you know, a groundbreaking election in many ways. And I think the lesson to... love that shit. But I think there's a lesson to be drawn from that. It, it sort, sort of as Barbara was saying that, like, the rules kind of have changed. And I think you can throw out some of your old assumptions. But there's two ways you can go. One is to be, um, you know, interested in finding the most um, powerful li- spokespeople for your movement, for your ideology, and trying to propel them to um, positions of power. I think the other is to be like, okay, we'll just find the same boring establishment guys, but we'll just go uh, through unconventional routes, like the mayor of a small town or the failed senatorial candidate from Texas. And it's like, (laughs) wait, but that's that's like a a weird lesson to draw from 2016. And, and to your point about, you know, electability is not something that falls from the sky. You know, whoever becomes the, the candidate or the nominee rather, for the Democrats is going to have a national party machinery at their back one way or the other. And there's also, you know, in addition to that, you then need excitement from both the grassroots and from the electorate at large. So like you become electable once you run for election, you know, like I just think it's not that difficult to um, ignore that question to a large extent and just focus on like, what is your message? What do you want to do? Why should you have power? And what do you plan to do with that power? Instead of these bizarre sort of like 80 chess games that everybody's playing um, to try to elect Beto O'Rourke or Mayor Pete.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no. And also just the likability question. I hate that. That's a question that is pulled constantly. Like, is Elizabeth Warren likable? I don't care if she's likable. I want to hear what she has to say, what she wants to do, and where she's, what direction she sees the Democratic Party going into, going in, and like the country going in. Like that question shouldn't be a pollster question, but it's. St- but that's the thing. Like we're still polling in a different way. Like we're we haven't really understood that things have evolved. And that's why organizations like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats were so interesting to watch. They were. Because they understood that they had made a mistake, especially within the institution itself, and kind of pushed the institution from the outside. Mm -hmm. And they decided to challenge the Democrats and be like, listen, the people you have in power, this ain't it. This is not working. Let's move this a little bit. Let's push you a little bit. And now AOC is a household name. Mm Well, the Green yeah. New Deal, they wrote it. AOC did not write it. Mm-hmm. Justice, Justice Democrats wrote it. Really? Yeah. Oh, it was one of the pillars of like having a candidate. If you agreed to be a candidate for them, there were a couple of things that you agreed to do, or like you espoused. Uh-huh. The Green New Deal was one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. They
0: developed. That's it. really interesting. So the Green New Deal basically came from the grass. Well, where. I understand it came from the grassroots, but I think mm-hmm. it needs to be...
2: Um, it was fine-tuned, of course, but yeah. it's still a community... Like, it was, it came from an organization that is a political action committee. Yeah. But still informed by the grassroots. And they were like, okay, how do we address the bigger topics? How do we talk about climate change in a way that makes sense and is tangible? And that was a huge... We, we all know what that means now, the mm-hmm. Green New Deal.
0: There's even a Canada Green New Deal, apparently that they're trying to shock around, <laughs> and which I'm just like, mm. anyway, on to, since, um, <laughs> since we've taken up a lot of time with this, we're going to move on to rant and Receipts. So moving on to rant and Receipts, um, where we each take, a. Uh, an article that we've come across that pissed us off and then share it with the rest. Barbara, you're first.
2: <laughs> Woo! Okay, so um, my article is an article by Elise Von Scheele. I hope I said it right. Um, in the CBC that was talking about the cost for Canadians for Canada's UN Security Council bid keeps mounting. So especially just the title was, seemed a little critical of the, of the fact that Canada is pursuing a UN Security Council bid. And um, I thought it was a very interesting take on Canada and foreign policy, especially going into an election. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for context, because to understand why this is important, you kind of need to understand the context a little bit. Um, so it has been almost 20 years since Canada has had a seat at the UN Security Council. Before these 20 years, Canada has always had a seat, a ro- one of the rotating seats uh, every 10 years. So every decade, Canada has been one of the countries. Who's had that has had a, a seat on one of the rotating seats. So the structure is five permanent members and ten non permanent members chosen in rota- in rotating elections every two years. This is the Security Council only. Yes, this right. is just for the Security Council. And that's also a big difference than just the, being General, the, Assembly. the General Assembly. So can being... you
0: explain what the Security Council yeah. has that the General Assembly doesn't? And yeah. I believe that's <laughs> decision making
2: power power yeah. yeah so the security council is uh the body of the un that's going to mostly have make decisions about peace and security and um the thing that they have in particular compared to the general assembly is it's a smaller council and it has five permanent members so it the five allies so china france the us uk and russia and those five permanent members have a permanent seat on the security council and they also have veto power right which is super super important to understand the conversation and then on top of that there was a decision to expand the security council after its creation to 10 non-permanent um members and those are chosen in rotating elections every two years um, Ooh, it's like the Oscars, with best picture. Oh, but the, it's actually, it's kind of like the Oscars because there's a campaign and there's a bid and you have to make an argument for why you are the best candidate. Um, there's also something that exists that a lot of people don't really know about mm-hmm. is that there's a ge- geographical balance when it comes to the non-permanent seats. Because the five permanent seats are held by European countries and China um, and The US, that is a North American country. Uh, But there are no countries from Asia. Western countries. Mm -hmm. Big quotation marks. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a geographical balance that was established in the 60s. Um, So there's also five seats reserved for Asian and African countries. There's one seat reserved for Eastern European countries. Mm-hmm. There are two seats uh, reserved for Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. And then there are two other seats that are reserved for Western Europe and other states. Mm-hmm. And that's the category Canada falls under. Mm-hmm. So every two years, there's like this big competition, kind of like the Oscars, mm-hmm. for those seats.
0: Ooh, best picture
2: oh yeah basically <laughs> it, it honestly is a campaign it's a million dollar campaign
0: i'm surprised if france is a permanent member and not germany
2: because france won the war and germany lost I see. Yeah, that, was <laughs> that,
0: that
2: that's why <laughs> that's why um so
0: no france won the france france win shit okay. france
2: was strategically allied to the people who won the war there you
0: go that sounds like france
2: uh, yeah they're strategic all right mm-hmm. um So the category Canada falls under is one of the most competitive groups Uh because it encompasses the people who have the money to run big campaigns. That's right. So Canada is actually running against Norway and Ireland for the seat. And it's even more interesting because Norway and Ireland actually, arguably, have a better stake.
0: I was just going to say... Good luck with that campaign.
2: But they arguably have a better stake for this seat because Norway is the biggest, like, just on all levels of records human rights record, foreign policy, um, what is it called? The Casque Bleu, blue helmets, peacekeeping. Mm -hmm. They all have a better record than Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's not saying much. Like, Canada and peacekeeping is like one, like, around the 60 like 60 countries that give the most peacekeeping to the world. Uh-huh. Ireland is 40. Huh. Is around 40. So like, that's not saying much. Huh. Um, but all of these, so there's well, this. Big, Ireland
0: just legalized abortion.
2: Yeah. Canada. doesn't have
0: any of those laws really on the record.
2: Again, when it comes to human rights, their human rights record, their foreign policy and their peacekeeping record; these countries arguably have a better stake than Canada. But, but feminism, exactly. Canada as a brand—it exactly the brand that Canada has had with the current government means that they have actually made this campaign for the UN bid, the Security Council bid, the cornerstone of their foreign policy. You <laughs> think I'm win? joking? <laughs> you think I'm joking? So I
0: don't. That's what it, I'm like. How problematic is it? Ishmael. Yeah. I feel like you're just counting up the problems that
2: I'm gonna <laughs> ask you about soon. <laughs> no, it's fascinating to read about and like follow this campaign that has been going on for over a year now because they've been building up to it. The election is in September 2020. They have spent, let me like double check my numbers because I want it since 2016, they have spent 1.5 million on this campaign. And $1 million of that has been in the last 10 months. So this is a big deal. So
0: that's why the Saudi Arabian girl. Oh, it's all coming
2: together. You're connecting the dots. I am totally
0: connecting the dots. Because they went to meet, uh, oh gosh, I forgot, Mohammed. What's her name? Um, Ra. Uh,
2: I don't remember. I think it was Alima. I'm not sure. I don't remember her name. You know what I mean? Like, I know who you mean. okay. okay. The, so basically, Canada's campaign um, has had five pillars, sustaining peace. So if you think about it, in the past couple of in the past year, we've been Christian Freeline has been talking a lot about peace in the world. They've been making a lot of comments on Venezuela, yep. and other countries. They've been talking a lot about so the second pillar is promoting women.
0: Rahaf Mohamed. Yeah. yeah, Rahaf
2: Mohamed. Yeah. Um, so they've been talking a lot about promoting women. Rahaf Mohamed mm-hmm. will fall into that piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, climate change and being a leader, a world leader on climate change. So Canada has been positioning themselves as a world leader on climate change. Um, economic security is one of the pillars as well. And the last one is promoting multilateralism.
0: This sounds like a status of women, like, about us.
2: Well, there's, oh, there's so much to unpack in it. Yeah. But um so why is so bringing it back why is this important mm-hmm. so when you read this article it is almost a bit it's kind of critical of this campaign mm-hmm. but at the same time for me it brought up a conversation that i think i'm not having enough at least in view of an upcoming election is mm-hmm. what do Canadians think of our foreign policy mm-hmm. like We have this, there's been a lot of conversation about Canada moving towards a feminist foreign policy Mm -hmm. and what that means and a restructuring and being a leader within the world. But how do Canadians view that? Mm -hmm. Have we had a critical eye on our foreign policy? Are we pushing our government on its foreign policy to improve it and to make it truly feminist? Well,
0: Um, we have to teach the population what feminism is.
2: Exactly. That's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also... What are the different political parties? What are their idea of foreign policy? We never really push it. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the US, when they're having an election, they will have a debate on foreign policy. Uh Canada will not. Really. Do we? No. We don't have a conversation on foreign policy. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the last time any sort of foreign policy featured heavily in a Canadian campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. I think maybe the Saudi arms deal sort of popped up in 2015, but everyone just kind of shrugged their shoulders and was like, jobs, what are you going (laughs) to (laughs) do?
2: Exactly. But it's true. And if we're going to have a truly progressive, a progressive like push in Canada, we're going to have to talk about foreign policy. And this bid for the security council is a big deal. Like, Canada has really positioned themselves. So, one of the things that they've done to position themselves to gain more votes, um, again, this might be a little bit niche, but um, Canada lost the seat for the head of the francophonie. Did you guys follow this? Michel Jean was the head of the francophonie, but Canada pulled their support away from Michel Jean. to uh, The beginning of this year. So, they pulled their support from Michel Jean. Canada didn't support the Canadian candidate so that an African candidate from Rwanda won because they wanted the promise that African countries, African Francophone countries will then support them for this bid.
0: Okay, let me get that let me get this straight. Yeah. So they pulled, because okay, first of all, Mikel Jean in the black Canadian community is a fucking rock star. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I didn't even re- realize that until like recently. Yeah. I was like, she's a rock star. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so they pulled support from her... So she was the Canadian candidate. Like, that... Like for a that's head of Francophonie? For the head of the Francophonie organization. Okay. So she has been the head of it for a couple of years now, and she mm-hmm. was up for re-election. <gasps> she was up for re-election. So they didn't support her re-election bid? They... They did a very subtle thing. They didn't... So they, they supported it until they saw that they weren't going to win, or there was they could see that because if you look at the francophonie where are the place where's the place where there are more french speakers in the world africa yeah sub-saharan africa yeah. um but they they weren't at the head of the francophonie so there was a concerted effort mm-hmm. within those african countries to bring forward a, a francophone candidate right um from rwanda okay and so the competition narrowed down to those two women mm-hmm. so the canadian candidate Mika jean and the Rwandese candidate, Mushikiwab. Mm. Um, and at the end of it, like there's lobbying and as there mm. always is when there's an election. And um, Canada did a subtle thing where they, they didn't, they still had a candidate, but the, the Canadian delegation didn't put their support forward for her.
0: Motherfuck.
2: Yeah. And that was, that was a, that was a signal to the community that they were going to support the Rondees candidate because in exchange they wanted their support for the Security, the Security Council. Council. See.
0: And how is that playing out? When is this vote? Has it happened? Is it
2: going out So the the vote for the Security Council is happening in September twenty twenty. Mm. So there's oh. Yes, and that's important, and that's why I bring it up. We might
0: not even have the same government.
2: And that is why it's important for us to talk about foreign policy and have a debate around foreign policy, because we need to understand that this is going to matter beyond just this election. Right. Because whoever has this seat on the Security Council is going to be privy to decisions by the Security Council. Mm -hmm. And something that happened earlier this week, again, is um, there's a UN rape and war resolution that was brought up Mm. in the security council Mm. and guess who shot it down canada no the The u.s yeah so the u.s oh yeah because canada's not not on the security council yet but the u.s yeah so the the u.s forced the security council to change the language and text within that resolution to dis to dilute it they literally diluted a resolution on rape in war zones they removed any mention of abortion or any mention of care for women in post-war conflict zones because they don't believe in that
0: i'm not sure that canada would have stood up to them anyway
2: well canada actually did um have a statement that was strongly worded but if they were on the security council they would have had a more like they would have had a better positioning to actually lobby and push the united states on that topic and of course like the u.s currently the powers that be would not support that resolution
0: but would they even listen to canada
2: well canada is still positioning themselves right Mm -hmm. and because
0: we haven't been particularly good on foreign
2: policy, I must say. We haven't been good on foreign policy in a long time. Mm. And the thing is, at some point, when you're on the Security Council, you do have some sway on what the topics are. So yeah. the way it works, the presidency of the Security Council rotates every month. And the pers- the president of the Security Council decides what topics are debated. Mm-hmm. So Canada is famous for having brought up blood diamonds and, like, spearheaded okay. the work around blood diamonds and making them illegal, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. But that was 20 years ago, and, like, no one remembers it. Yeah. um, It was
0: 20 years ago. We have exactly. a movie already. That's, we have, that's old itself. We
2: have a Leo DiCaprio movie, so, like, it no longer Yeah, matters. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and,
0: you know, that was when he was popular.
2: Exactly. And he was young and pretty. <laughs> but it's important for us to have a conversation around foreign, foreign policy, because that's... That's the... Whoever wins the next election is... Might be on the Security Council oh, representing Lord. Canada. And... Some people might not think that matters, but I do. <laughs> and I kind of want to make sure that the people who are on that security council are not going to be advocating for women's rights across the world to be completely erased. You know? Fair. So, yeah, Fair. that was my rant and
0: Awesome. So, um, I'm going to talk about something a bit different. <laughs> Just a tad. A tad different, but still
2: outside of Canada. Ooh, right. We're international today. We are. We're
0: because you know, people of color.
2: Anyway, um
0: <clears throat> so the British police have delivered a new policy on crime investigation. If you want to be pursued, if you want your case to be pursued, sorry, be prepared to turn over your personal data from your mobile phone, laptop, tablet, or smart What the fuck? That's wild. That is why. <laughs> like, Really? So here's the problem. The new policy raises concerns about potential invasions of privacy and the risk of discouraging people from reporting crimes, particularly offenses like sexual assault that are already underreported because victims fear being treated like the guilty ones. There are no guarantees that the police won't use that data in other ways that aren't intended down the line. Once the police have your data, they don't necessarily erase it. Even if it's stored for years, we don't know what that use what it will be used for later, and there are all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, privacy advocates say that the police departments often improperly download cell phone data from people they detain without their knowledge or consent. And under the new approach, this is the this is a huge issue. Victims <laughs> and witnesses will routinely be asked to sign a form saying that they consent to the police extracting data from their electronic devices, which can mean text messages, emails, contacts, social media records, internet browsing history, and more. Otherwise, they might not pursue the case. But, they warned, if investigators stumble across something incriminating, even if it's irrelevant to the original case, the accuser can become the accused. And my question is, besides what the living hell, um, sexual assault victims are not... Victims are not perfect. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to turn this over to Ishmael since he's been quiet for a while. And you are the the digital man in this (laughs) trio today.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is pretty shocking stuff because... I wonder if it's like a uniquely British thing. Cause isn't London like already like one of the most surveilled cities in the world. Like they have yes. CCTV cameras CCTV. on every corner. So it's like, it's, they're already like the most sur- heavily like surveilled people like this side of like um, Chinese detention camps. So yeah. like in a way it's not surprising because the UK always has like these weird um, approaches to privacy and data but it's i also just think it's a harbinger of like where we're headed like i don't mm-hmm. uh i don't foresee this being an aberration like i'm pretty sure similar laws are going to pop up and you know i think it raises a question about not only like how invasive this is but also like data literacy and who has access to justice and it's it's pretty like i just don't think you can go two steps beyond this law without you without running into like gross inequality and unequal treatment. And it's pretty scary stuff.
2: Yeah. It's also interesting that they're choosing to enact it at this time when they're leaving the EU. Because I think before leaving the EU, they were kind of constrained by stricter laws. And that's been what's been preventing this extra like step from happening. That's a good point if yeah. you think of the GDPR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the EU like has the right to be forgotten we don't even have that here um within the digital space and i think now that they're leaving the eu these i almost want to call it draconian yeah because they are um draconian laws and choices uh, in policing are it's it's just flabbergasting to be honest that this is a thing it's also and i wonder what the challenge is gonna be it's also
1: like kind of remarkable that the british cops are just admitting that they've never solved a crime before apparently like <laughs> like how, what have they been doing for the last several hundred years like um you know scotland yard like they've got a big reputation am i to believe that they've never been able to like w- do their jobs without going through people's personal records when they're victimized like it's i i don't really understand like the case for like why now? Or like, why is the existing system not working? And they're just like, eh, just give us your phone.
0: (laughs) Or we won't pursue your case. What the fuck is that? How is that even constitutional?
2: It's probably not. (laughs) I don't know. Again, I'm no lawyer, but um... I'm
0: no lawyer either. But I I, I really don't understand how this is basically how this is going to stand. But like you said, it's like you said, Ishmael, it's like the, the UK and London especially is one of the most surveilled place on the planet. With the, the, obvious, the obvious sort of um, takeaway from this is especially if you look at sexual assault, like basically marginalized victims. Mm-hmm. And when I say marginalized, I'm not just necessarily talking about from marginalized communities, but... You know, you think of sex workers, drug users, mm-hmm. all of those people who are not na- are vulnerable to assault and predatory behavior because they're outside of the system are yeah. just being further pushed marginally outwards. And the surveillance state that we that the UK has, it's not it's not a far fetched assumption
2: mm-hmm. that
0: it will come here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is the point. Mm-hmm. And um, that it is sort of slowly, maybe not so slowly, taking shape here. ishrael, when you were working for BuzzFeed, did you um, study like these kinds of things in terms of police surveillance and stuff like that? Or write about them? Sorry.
1: I, I did, you know, cover um, data and surveillance stuff, you know, in the past. Um, not so much recently, but It is. It's one of those topics that can get really depressing really fast because, on the one hand, there's an arms race between you know all sides involved to see like who can scoop up the most data you know be it hackers or governments or um, whoever it might be you know Facebook (laughs) like there's just it feels like such a a weird long time losing battle that we've all had to have control over our own information and and our own lives but. I, I, I feel like you don't need to project that far into the future to see how this stuff can be abused. You know, I, I'm not just using China as an example, because I know that there's like weird problematic fixations that people can have about like Chinese surveillance as though we don't do that stuff here. But I think you can certainly yeah. see like a really extreme example of it, of what's happening in Western China with, with the Uyghur community, where this like ethno-religious community is just completely uh, in a digital prison uh, you know, the face scans and, and just all their movements are tracked and anybody who d- diverges from what's acceptable gets thrown in prison. And uh, and it's really rough. You, at the same time, you see people, uh, police departments in, in the U.S., like trying to constantly up the ante with facial recognition and all sorts of technologies that, you know, the promise of them is that they're liberatory and that they make our lives better and easier. But I, it's just really you constantly see this push by governments, um, be they democratic or not to just get more and more of our stuff to get more and more control. And it's, I, I I don't know how to make this issue vital to people. That's, that's my biggest concern is that it's, it's really hard to make people take these abstract concerns and, um, I guess find a personal stake in them. And that's what I worry about, that it's just going to keep going Uh, just as, you know, we, we've all just gotten used to like weekly Facebook scandals (laughs) in terms of how they're losing our shit. And it's just like, that's the price of modern life. A lot of us have decided.
0: Um, there needs to be, so earlier you had mentioned the, the digital literacy divide. Mm Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is what's playing into the, um, the so-called apathy. And if you look at any sort of congressional hearing with a tech company, you know that there is a huge literacy divide. These people don't even, the decision makers, the people who should be enacting policies don't even know what's going on. They don't know how this stuff works. They don't even understand the business model of these companies. That their business model is to sell privacy and data, but they—I don't even think they understand the consequences of what that means, or what can happen. Um, anything from from being uh, surveilled by an abusive partner mm-hmm. to um, to the state. Surveilling, um, you know, child child welfare issues to immigration to all of these things are being affected by AI and facial recognition and so on and so forth. And I also think we just don't have a media, also that's digitally literate enough. You, notwithstanding, of
1: course. <laughs> Thank you. I've, it's funny that you mentioned um, that because the 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 fact that lawmakers often have no idea because there's that standout moment from one of the times that Mark Zuckerberg was in front of the U.S. Congress (laughs) where, you know, they're Mm -hmm. like hours deep into this hearing and one of the senators is like, well, hold on a minute. You're telling me you don't charge people to use Facebook? And it's like, yeah, Yeah. no, we don't. It's like, well, how on earth do you make money? And Mark Zuckerberg is just like, we sell ads, Senator. (laughs) It's like...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. It's 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 a striking moment for one of those things and I, I remember shows, that. Yeah. I remember that.
0: And so um what I find is that even if we were to mount any sort of defense and and there are people who are doing it. Again, back to the activism, back to the advocacy and grassroots work that people have made this their lifelong like issue to fight on they're the ones holding it down
2: because
0: mm-hmm. nobody else is
2: i think they also there's also something that's really almost pervasive about this issue is um we're made to feel like we can't talk about it because we don't understand it yeah and it's, we're too dumb exactly it's made to feel like it's too big and too inaccessible for me and you to talk about our data and like protecting our data and what that would look like and what that entails mm-hmm. and for me it came to a head because so I, I wasn't born in Canada. I moved here. Uh, I'm not Canadian. I came here for school. And um, when you come here, you go through a battery of tests, and you also have to give a lot of your own personal data. Mm. So like fingerprints, uh, body scans, you have to go through medical exams, all of these things the Canadian government has access to. Mm. And then recently, the Canadian government changed uh, – a. The, part of the changes that happened in the immigration process was having to give away your um, bio information, like bio bio data. Mm -hmm. And that's not an option. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to come here to be a student, whether you want to come here to be a visitor or whether you want to immigrate here, Mm -hmm. that's no longer optional. That is mandatory, but it's not mandatory for everyone. And that's where it becomes complicated and, pervasive Mm. it's mandatory for certain people from certain countries
0: Mm. the shithole countries okay
2: and that's a conversation everyday canadians or even people who are working in high level advocacy just aren't having because we're made to think like this is beyond our understanding this is beyond our control and there's also the implication that it's for security Every single time you want to talk about this, it's like, oh, but security, and that shuts down that conversation. Immediately. Well, it's the
0: Patriot Act that opened up this mass, this mass surveillance. Mm-hmm. You know, before all the technology had to do was catch up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now you have Google and Amazon, and um, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft selling their facial recognition to the military yeah. and to the FBI. Like that is some scary. Dystopian shit. And I find that, like, again, like, I wish we had a media that talked about it, that could break it down to the average person and actually talk about it. But they won't do that until it's too late. Again, BuzzFeed notwithstanding. Actually, BuzzFeed is the one that cracked open the whole um, Russian troll farm issue.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think you're right that there's just... I think one of the problems, if we're just talking about media coverage, is that it's still often seen as a technology story. And then on some issues, it becomes a business story. And increasingly now, it's like, occasionally it'll become a political story, but, but it's still weirdly siloed, yeah. right? And instead of just being like, Mm-hmm. The air that we breathe. You know, it's strange to 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 think of these kinds of digital or internet issues as being in any one box, because literally we we all carry it around in our pockets with us. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, like it, it's tough, it's tough to see how you can make people care, other than I guess just telling them like this could be you, <laughs> you know. Um, and Barbara, I, I went through a similar thing, you know, in moving to the U.S. Like, when when I'm when I was going going through all sorts of immigration processes. Um, you, there's no choice. Like, you got to give over your biometric data. You have to give over like your entire like history of life on this planet. Just, just yeah, yep, just for the everything. ability to like live and work in a place. And certainly, like people who are native-born citizens of, of whatever country don't see that side of it. And that's just on immigration. And, and you know, I just feel like mm-hmm. that's going to creep into like employment and government services and and just a million other places. And Unless people actually stand up and, and try to oppose that,
2: yeah, and it's definitely a big conversation within like advocacy circles when you're talking about uh, refugee rights and et cetera, et cetera, because you become part of a system that knows everything about you, and you, you know, you're no longer um, entitled to protecting your data, and that conversation needs to to be to be had and i don't know how to make people care <laughs> like you said like it's just a complicated very specific like it's starting in a very specific community that doesn't have a voice or that doesn't necessarily get the attention and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and i don't know how to make people care well i have an idea yeah
0: um it's like how it's like how do you get people to care about big shit that doesn't really that they don't think really affects them like one of the criticisms we had about climate change was that um, we don't talk about it in a way that ma- that is relevant to people. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to make it somehow relevant, but how do you make immigration relevant to people who are not immigrants? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's the big question in general. Mm-hmm. And the way immigration is being talked about now, and to be honest, we have a government that has been duplicitous about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know how to make that happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, I one of the things that I wanted to talk about this week, which maybe we can get into later or we can do now, is just like this whole... Let's do
0: it now, Dan. Let's do
1: it. So, you know, th- there's been this like bizarre turn in this election to talk about, quote unquote, electability. And yeah. of course, electability is usually... You know, you talk about like, oh, progressives always want purity. They want a pure candidate who's perfect. Well, purity politics goes both ways because, you know, uh, often the sort of establishment uh, wing of a political party also wants purity. But the thing mm-hmm. they're looking for is, in, you know, in, in the U.S. case, uh, being friendly to big business being okay with a little bit of racism, (laughs) because they seem to think that that's how you win over white working class people instead of trying to appeal to them on uh, other grounds. And so there's all sorts of um, stuff about how Joe Biden is the quote unquote, most electable of the bunch. And this is just such a scam, because basically, the Democratic Party has convinced its own voters over the last 30 years, that they can't have what they want. They can't vote for the candidates who actually have the most exciting policies or who speak to their values. They have to all be political strategists and all think three steps ahead of like, well, I don't like him, but I assume my racist neighbor must like him. So let's nominate the sort of racist guy to appeal to the full racist. And it's a bizarre way. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it's- seriously. Like, honestly, it's no, I'm laughing because it's so true. Carry on.
1: it's just it's this weird insistence on on making voters all become political um strategists which is silly because voters should first and foremost be voting right they should be voting for whoever is promising to make their lives better but you know I, i think this is just a problem on the broad left more than it is on the right because when you look at the republican party you know, primary voters just want, you know, the guy who promises them uh, fewer taxes and more guns, you know, to to put it bluntly. They, they, They are not as willing to water down their expectations, or at least not until very late in the game, like, you know, when it comes down to like late in the primaries or something. It's like, ah, yeah, I guess we still want that Supreme Court seat, so maybe. But, you know, you didn't see that in 2016. You didn't see it in a 2000 you just it, and you know what they have not suffered a penalty for it because at least people know where these candidates stand they know what the party stands for whereas on the you know broad liberal left side it's this constant sort of triangulating that ultimately means that your own base isn't excited and the people you're trying to convince don't know what you stand for and it's just of course you know the current conversation about electability benefits the guy who is the most out of touch with the changing country, as as was discussed earlier, and who also has unique weaknesses. Like, how is he going to go up against Trump, the guy who has admitted to sexually, you know, uh, assaulting women? When he has this creepy touching problem, at the very yeah. least, yeah, you know, it may be worse. Uh, who knows what else we'll find out about him. Um, But certainly, like, you can't have the creepy uncle going up against the uh, admitted sexual assaulter because it's it's just it doesn't scan, you know, and you can't have him going after Trump as like a rotten part of like the establishment because Joe Biden literally is the establishment. His promise is to bring back normalcy and to work with Republicans and and go back to the kumbaya bipartisan centrist era that is just long gone and he doesn't realize it. And the people who suffer from this electability focus is not just people on the left, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who are, who are legitimately challenging the system, but you're also seeing it bite people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, who, you know, if you look at their political careers are, you know, fairly moderate, like sort of played it by the book, like paid their dues, got to a level they, you know, in some ways, they've played it as safe as you can as a politician, and yet because they're not white men, they are still paying the tax of electability. It's just a rigged game, and I just don't think anybody needs to be taking it seriously at this point.
2: Yeah, I agree. All those points. <laughs> it's it's honestly I think that was a mic drop. Yeah, it yeah. is. Well, it's it's an extremely frustrating thing to watch play out because, in a lot of ways, Joe Biden is the worst choice you could have made yeah but he feels this entitlement to running for president and getting elected eventually if they choose him um but like he's still saying things like dick cheney is a great dude and like
0: like what the ever-living fuck like he had like shut up joe it's all i'm like i'm like i i this is my thing my thing is the 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 coddling of the white vote. Mm-hmm. This is my problem. So kind of picking up from what you said, Ishmael, is that is that there's like this this coddling of the oh my god, the white vote, we're losing it. The amount of think pieces that have been um attributed to this vote that they've lost and they're trying to figure out how to recoup is, 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 amazing to me. Obama was more like, yeah, we'll get some white people. Sure. Okay, fine. But we'll get some other people. We'll form this coalition, a coalition that Hillary dropped. Yeah. She dropped the ball. Don't at me. She dropped the ball on that one. And, um, because I do believe there is this white arrogance where they're like, well, you can't go anywhere else. You're stuck with us. So, you know, we don't need to worry about, about you. When it has been shown time and time again, the black women especially are the ones that save their asses. When consistently, when they are, you know, on the ropes, mm-hmm. Alabama for one. How many black women turned out for Hillary Clinton? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I and and yet that vote is consistently being disrespected.
2: Well, they, they they take it for granted.
0: They do, but guess what? Black women can stay home too. And this just goes to show that staying home. I used to think staying
2: home was bullshit.
0: Now I think it's a strategy.
2: I actually. I'm different. I think you go, you vote, but you vote uh, Blanc, so you you don't put in a name. Oh. Because that's a protest vote, because it's registered and you see that you came in, and this is something that's used a lot more in Europe, so in France, um, yeah. a lot of people will protest their vote by going in and voting. voting. It's a null vote, and those mm-hmm. votes are counted and actually... Um, like written down and like they're not a spoiled ballot they're actually a ballot that's counted and it's part of the statistics that are shared at the end of each voting cycle interesting so i think that's a strategy we should be using more oh, as we work around like civic education and voter like civic education letting pe- voters know what their rights are and what mm-hmm. what we care about mm-hmm. i think that should be a strategy more than staying home cuz staying home like it can be interpreted as apathy and but because you care mm-hmm. go vote but show that none of the candidates actually Represent your vote. Reflect what yeah. you're looking for. That's yeah. more of a protest vote for me than just not going.
0: Fair. Fair.
2: Continue. Sorry, i Yeah,
1: no. Um, but, like, I,
0: like, <laughs> that Anita Hill thing still stings. Uh, mass incarceration is a thing. So good luck with that Black vote It's my point. And, Guess what? And
2: he still has it. I
0: saw that. I saw that. But then so did Hillary at this time. Yeah. Well, for me... Until <laughs> I I Black Lives Matter cornered her and was like, oh, yeah, what about this super predator bullshit? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: It's, for me, the whole thing with Bernie Sanders, well, Joe Biden, but also, like, Joe Biden is so out of touch, it, it hurts. Mm. Like, literally, he has... He still doesn't take full responsibility for his actions with Anita Hill. Mm -hmm. And at this point, like, it's like talking to a wall. Like, he just will not listen. He does not feel like he's done anything wrong. He's joking about the creepy touching. Yeah, like.
0: Yeah, I saw that. He's like, What do you mean I'm creepy? I'm just a friendly guy.
2: No, it was even worse. He was on stage with a kid and he's like, Yeah, this kid gave me permission to touch him. How? (gasps) Oh, are you serious? Legitimately. This guy did is
0: this, why didn't you why didn't you send that to me, Aaron?
2: <laughs> <laughs> He is completely out of touch and completely like does not understand. He he keeps saying stuff about millennials being like millennials are entitled da, 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 da. Like, dude, like what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get elected or are you just gonna be the old uncle just going up there and saying like whatever you want and then just like ride the I, coattails? I see
0: Obama gave him a lot of cover.
2: Well, actually he was like, Obama I asked Obama not to endorse me. Didn't you say Yeah, he said exactly. Like he uh, he was he, everyone was like, okay, so like Obama's gonna have to endorse someone and he's like, actually I asked Obama not to endorse me because I don't want him to sway the votes within the Democratic Party. I want him to support whoever becomes the final candidate. But he still dropped Obama's name five times.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean t- being Obama's like show- Sorry, you guys have an issue?
2: No, no, no. no, go, no, no go ahead.
1: Oh, sorry. No. My, my bad. I, I thought I heard, hold on. Um, I'll start over. Yeah, the whole thing about, like, I asked Obama not to endorse me is the funniest lie I think I've ever heard, which is like, <laughs> I, folks, I asked the most popular Democrat in the country and the last successful Democratic president not to help me win. <laughs> it's just the kind of guy I am. You know, I don't know who he thinks he's fooling with that, but... <laughs> It's, it's so, it's so ridiculous. But um, the thing that I, I think I found even more upsetting than Joe Biden, if I can just change subjects a little bit, yeah, is Pete Buttigieg, also Same. also know. <laughs> known as Mayor Pete, because his last name is impossible to remember. But Mayor Pete is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a, a city that has, I don't know what the population is, it's like 30, 40,000, even if it's, you know, 50, 100,000. The idea, you know, he has just rocketed to the front of media coverage, and he's gotten like four or five glowing profiles in like time and all these, you know, mainstream outlets. And he's seen as the smart guy, the intellectual guy, because he can speak broken Norwegian for two sentences. (laughs) And again, like even though Mayor Pete is openly gay, uh, you know, which is not insignificant, I don't want to diminish that, but he's still a guy who, who benefits from being a white guy. And he's seen as like, literally when was the last time a mayor uh, rocketed to um, the presidency? I don't think it's ever happened. And it certainly w- won't happen with the South Bend, Indiana mayor. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be real. But, but you know, he's no, suddenly seen as like everybody's safe choice. It's like, well, if Joe Biden like fucks up, then at least we have Mayor Pete as like the safe, like secondary centrist whatever choice. And it's like, okay, but like, there was just a piece in the New York times that uh, came out Sunday and it was looking at this question of electability and who's viable and the both mayor Pete and, but also like Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, really all the guys have lost elections and the women Mm -hmm. running by and large have never lost an election, including Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris And Amy Klobuchar and um, I'm forgetting the last one, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, they have a 100 percent, you know, success rate. And yet they have to face these questions about like, oh, but can you win? It's like that's literally all they've done in their careers. (laughs) And, you know, but sure, everybody go pay attention to the mayor.
0: Well, that was my whole thing with better O'Rourke, right? Was that, I'm like, how did, how do you, what are we French now? How do we elevate a loser to like statues and shit? (laughs) Like, like that's what the French do with Napoleon. I'm like, he lost. Like, what the fuck? Like, you know what I mean? Like, have your Napoleon statue in the Louvre, okay? Yeah. As as like a historical figure, but not everywhere because the motherfucker lost.
2: And Like, I don't understand. What's even more frustrating about Beto and oh. Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, like, these guys just aren't bringing anything to the table. They are not, they don't have policies. Every time they, they're asked a question, they're like, one, like, debacle after another.
0: You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jerry fucking Butts mm-hmm. in the Justice Committee being like, Hi there, Lisa. Remember me? <laughs> oh, 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 like, fuck off. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. It's like, you got, you got nothing.
2: This whole conversation around electability, for me, oh. honestly, the peak of it were, was when people were talking about Stacey Abrams.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, Stacey Abrams, especially when they were talking about Biden, him running, and the possibility of him having a running mate as a black woman. Stacey Abrams was like front of mind and it was extremely frustrating to talk to progressive men around that time mm-hmm. because a lot of them were like Stacey Abrams is not electable. She is not a viable candidate. And when you would ask them why, they could not tell you why. But they would say Tim Kane is like the perfect guy to go against Trump. Who? I know Tim oh, exactly. Kaine. Uh-huh. And they would say, like, yeah, she's like not exciting. She's all these things. And you're like, have you read anything about Stacey Abrams? Have you listened to her? Have you read her policies or anything? Let
0: me tell you something yeah. about how out of touch fucking peak Bo- I know. I need to bring this back to the damn movie. <laughs> but le- let me just say this. I saw on like late last week he was having lunch with like <laughs> <Ooh>. Al Sharp.
2: <Chardin.
0: laughs> oh really? <laughs> and I'm sorry, is Al Sharpton a spokesman for black people? This is how I know Pete knows no black people. Yeah. Okay? Because he would have been, I would have been like, you didn't call D-Ray McKesson? Like, you haven't been on Pod Save the People but yet? Like you
2: know what? Like, Ira, um. Madison the Madison Merc? is a huge Pete Buttigieg fan. Really? Mm-hmm. I was super surprised by it too. And I think the angle he's going at it from is like, it's a, first serious gay man who's running for president and he feels that he should be given a level playing field which again not to minimize it the fact that he's a gay man openly gay man married running for office like that is a huge deal but that still does not mean he deserves to be on that playing field like you know what i mean like there's there's an expectation of a candidacy for presence or at least like we think there yeah, is because yeah. at this point the rules don't make <clears throat> any sense to anyone and everyone's just kind of doing their own thing but like there is a huge baseline support on that mm. but the fact that we haven't broken the glass ceiling the highest of glass ceilings as hillary clinton would say for women that's no longer part of the conversation nice. that's been lost mm. and i don't know how we bring it back and how people make that the topic of conversation kind of centred around this electability question. Well,
0: I think what the, you know, Knock Down the House movie really, and you can actually, Ishval, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, which is the idea of electability and how you make someone electable. People are acting like electability just falls from the sky or is inherent in people. And there's a machine Mm -hmm. that makes you electable. Mm -hmm. So Ishval, can you... Mainly, like, can you speak on that
1: in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, electability is, you know, it's such an ineffable quality. But you, you, somebody who was not electable supposedly was Donald Trump. You know, he was this game show host running a, an explicitly, you know, racist, white nationalist campaign. His whole party repudiated him at one point, and yet he won because, you know, that's. It was, you know, a groundbreaking election in many ways. And I think the lesson to, but I think there's a lesson to be drawn from that. It's sort of as Barbara was saying that like the rules kind of have changed and I think you can throw out some of your old assumptions, but there's two ways you can go. One is to be, um, you know, interested in finding the most, um, powerful spokespeople for your movement, for your ideology and trying to propel them to, um, positions of power. I think the other is to be like okay we'll just find the same boring establishment guys but we'll just go uh through unconventional routes like the mayor of a small town or the failed senatorial candidate from Texas and it's like <laughs> wait but that's, that's like a, a weird lesson to draw from 2016 and and to your point about you know electability is not something that falls from the sky you know whoever becomes the the candidate or the nominee rather for the Democrats is going to have a national party machinery at their back one way or the other. And there's also, you know, in addition to that, you then need excitement from both the grassroots and from the electorate at large. So like you become electable once you run for election, you know, like I just think it's not that difficult to um, ignore that question to a large extent and just focus on like, what is your message? What do you want to do? Why should you have power? And what do you plan to do with that power? Instead of these bizarre, sort of like eight D chess games that everybody's playing um, to try to elect Beto O'Rourke or Mayor Pete.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, and also just the likability question. I hate that that's a question that is pulled constantly. Like. Is Elizabeth Warren likable? I don't care if she's likable. I want to hear what she has to say, what she wants to do, and where she's, what direction she sees the Democratic Party going into, going in, and like the country going in. Like that question shouldn't be a pollster question, but it's. St- but that's the thing. Like we're still polling in a different way. Like we're we haven't really understood that things have evolved. And that's why organizations like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats were so interesting to watch. They were. Because they understood that they had made a mistake, especially within the institution itself, and kind of pushed the institution from the outside. Mm -hmm. And they decided to challenge the Democrats and be like, listen, the people you have in power, this ain't it. This is not working. Let's move this a little bit. Let's push you a little bit. And now AOC is a household name. Mm -hmm. Well, the Green yeah. New Deal, they wrote it. AOC did not write it. Mm-hmm. Justice, Justice Democrats wrote it. Really? Yeah. Oh, it was one of the pillars of, like, having a candidate. If you agree to be a candidate for them, there were a couple of things that you agreed to do or, like, you espoused. Uh-huh. The Green New Deal was one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. They
0: developed That's that. really interesting. So the Green New Deal basically came from the grass. Well, where... I understand it came from the grassroots, but I think mm-hmm. it needs to
2: be... Um, it was fine-tuned, of course, yeah. but it's still a community... Like, it was, it came from an organization that is a political action committee. Yeah. But still informed by the grassroots. And they were like, okay, how do we address the bigger topics? How do we talk about climate change in a way that makes sense and is tangible? And that was a huge... We, we all know what that means now, the mm-hmm. Green New Deal.
0: There's even a Canada Green New Deal, apparently that they're trying to shock around and (laughs) which I'm just like, "Mm." anyway, on to since, um, (laughs) since we've taken up a lot of time with this and on that note, (laughs) that's it. We're going (laughs) to wrap up this. So, um, thank you, Ishmael and Barbara for hanging out with me today. Um, Ishmael, where can people Um, find you? I'm
1: on Twitter at ID4RO, or you can just search for my name and, um, yeah, watch Democracy Now! Monday to Friday.
2: Awesome. Uh, I'm on Twitter too. It's B um, Yeah, find me on the internet. Okay, so we have a litany of
0: areas <laughs> Facebook, slash Bad and B Twitter at Bad and Bitchy. Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod. Email at Bad and B Pod at gmail.com patreon patreon.com forward slash bad and bitchy i did it again um fuck it red bubble because we got merch that barbara is wearing to barbara you warned my heart when you entered the zone
2: it's really funny because i got this the day before it you guys asked me to get on uh, to come on the pod. So I was like, yes! <laughs> like I'm wearing this. <laughs>
0: so we will we will Instagram that bad boy, but you can find your own bad and bitchy birch at rugbubble.com forward slash people slash bad and bitchy. So, um, you know you guys have to say bye. But yes. Can I put something? You have to say it in like a A white girl Oh, God.
1: I feel like I'm going to get in trouble no matter what I do here. (laughs)
0: No, you know the white
2: girl way. It's like, bye all, We all have that internal white person in us. We have the internal white girl in us. (laughs) Let's not pretend. Every person of color has that white voice that they adopt when they're on the phone. Yes. Just tap into that. Code switch.
1: I will (laughs) channel my inner Becky.
0: (laughs) Okay, one comes back. Two, Bye. Two, three. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Okay, so Ishmael, uh, we covered your rant and receipts in the last segment. Is there anything that you want to add? To uh, it? No,
1: I think I think we covered it all. Our we covered that pretty thoroughly. Yeah. I'll say, if I need to come up with a um, a second thing to to rant about, I'll just say I think there's too many blue apps. If you if you look at like your phone screen or even like on your computer. Everything is blue now and it drives me crazy because like at some point companies realized that like blue is a nice color and that most people can see it. Okay. Even I think most kinds of color blindness, you can still see blue. And now when I look at my phone, I I just am constantly opening the wrong app because they're all fucking blue. Now (laughs) that's my rant. I, we need to get more colors into app making.
0: You know, you know what the other one is green. Oh, is that another one? Yeah, green is like, green is everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's on my, it's the phone, it's the messages, it's Spotify, it's TD Canada, it's Feedly, it's, it's all sorts of, but I have, it's WhatsApp, it's Starbucks, but blue is like Twitter, LinkedIn, blue is for all the like social media networks except for Instagram and, and the other one that keeps not dying, which is the other one,
2: Snapchat. Snapchat. Oh, yeah, Snapchat sure is dying a slow death. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say to that. It might just be a case of, like, we need app developers from different backgrounds and people who have different ideas because these people are all talking to each other and are talking from the yeah. same place, I guess. Oh,
1: Less surveillance, gosh. more color. That's my big technology take.